Welcome to this episode of the Business of Practice podcast, where we're going to focus on the physical, financial, and human sides of equine veterinary medicine. In this episode, we're talking about compassion fatigue with Colleen Best, DVM, PhD, CCFP. I'm your host, Kim Brown, publisher of Equal Management. This Business of Practice podcast is brought to you by Decor Veterinary Products. Dr. Best's PhD research focused on relationships in equine practice, including veterinarian client and referring veterinarian specialist communications. Best operates her own business, Best Vet Coaching and Consulting in Ontario. Thank you, Dr. Best, for joining us today to talk about compassion fatigue. And please start by telling me what is CCFP? So CCFP means Certified Compassion Fatigue Professional. And I think I did that certification a number of years ago now, and it really opened my eyes and helped me better understand what compassion fatigue actually is, as opposed to, I think, what I thought it was beforehand. Well, in an article that you wrote for Equimanagement on this topic, and which is available on our website, if you want to go look on equimanagement.com, you said, and I quote, despite its name, compassion fatigue is not simply exhaustion that results from caring about one's patients. There is a dynamic balance between compassion satisfaction, which is the pleasure derived from helping others, the exhaustion that results from doing so, which is compassion fatigue, and having trouble performing one's job effectively. Compassion fatigue results when there's an imbalance between these things. So can you explain compassion fatigue and veterinarians a little more to us? Yeah, I can. So compassion fatigue has two different components from when we look at the evidence and what's published it. It has two different components. The first is burnout. And I think we all have an intuitive understanding of what burnout is, specifically as it's related to or talked about in the compassion fatigue literature. They talk about perceived demands exceeding perceived resources. So when there's so much going on that you feel so much is being asked of you that there's no way you can do it all. And that's an unpleasant feeling. And that's a state of being that we usually relate to our workplace. Although as a mom, I feel like I've definitely had mom-related burnout as well. So we have burnout and an experience of burnout. And when we couple that with something called secondary traumatic stress, then we, we can it be in a spot where we're vulnerable to or experiencing compassion fatigue. Secondary traumatic stress probably needs a bit of unpacking. Um, it sounds a lot like a phrase we've all probably heard more often, which is post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. PTSD happens when we experience a traumatic experience ourselves. We're on the highway. If we are in a car crash, we may experience PTSD after. In, in PTSD, you have about three weeks of, hey, experiencing what we call like normal after an event stress. After that three weeks, if you're still experiencing flashbacks, anxiety relating to driving, wanting to avoid those things, feeling hypervigilant and so on, then we consider, and I am not a psychiatrist, so I'm not going to diagnose anything, but that might be considered to be um, in a state of PTSD. Secondary traumatic stress would be if you were three cars back from the accident, you stopped in time, your body was safe, but you witnessed something traumatic. Seeing a car crash 
can have some of those similar negative effects. I don't want to drive on the highway. I'm scared. I, I don't feel comfortable in the car. I'm constantly worried. I'm hypervigilant that something's going to happen when I'm on the road. So even though the experience didn't happen to me, I saw it happen. And that's when I can experience secondary traumatic stress. And so in equine practice, A, we're on the road a lot. So we'll, we'll leave our highway examples, hoping that none of us are in car accidents. But we witness difficult things that happen to other people. And that's where our experience and our witnessing of other people's trauma, and trauma in this case is not just a car accident. It might be, um, you know, the loss of a beloved companion, you know, sport companion didn't, didn't get, didn't get into, um, you know, the competition we wanted to, any of those things that we know are just difficult, uh, a difficult accident, a riding accident, all of those things that we watch our clients go through, even in their family lives, maybe the loss of a child or a partner, we are witnessing by the nature of our jobs, other people go through traumatic things. And because of that witnessing, we are at risk of compassion fatigue, depending on what else is going on in our lives. So, Dr. Best, what are maybe some signs that an individual veterinarian is suffering from compassion fatigue? And we realize this, this compassion fatigue can occur with vets and techs and staff. So when I say veterinarians, I'm talking about the entire community at the clinic. Definitely. So compassion fatigue because trauma is unique, trauma is unique in everybody's body and our bodies respond differently, just sort of based on, based on who we are and how we, um, just sort of what, what is right for us in our personal experience. So often there are sort of some key components of compassion fatigue that occur, one of which is re-experiencing. So we have, you know, we remember that event. Um, something that might traditionally be called a flashback, um, but for us, it might seem a little more subtle. Um, then we'd think about having intrusive thoughts and intrusive thoughts would be like, hey, when I'm going about my everyday business, you know, something sort of sneaks in and smacks me. Like I was, you know, I was out watching my kid's soccer game and I suddenly remembered something about a case or I was, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night and some of that I think can sometimes be written off as um, being a caring or engaged practitioner. Like, oh, I just care a lot about my patients. And that's true. But when it starts interfering with our everyday living, that's something to just flag and be, can be aware of. And then sort of the other two things are, are we starting to have avoidance behavior? And um, that might look like, I don't want to go to work. I don't want to see those clients. Um, I have a colleague who had had a really tough run with a laminitis case. It was very prolonged and really difficult. And I tried to refer a laminitis case a couple of years later. And he said, no, no, you can't send it to me. And I recognize that as I can't go through that again because that first time was so hard. Um, and, and so again, sort of that I want to avoid things that look like that traumatic experience that I witnessed. And then there's sort of this polarity between I might withdraw and I might be tired and not want to engage in things, or I might go into overdrive and want to work all the time. And 
And that's sort of just different ends of the spectrum of trying to push away those, trying to push those things away. Our body can choose to manage that in different ways. And that's because trauma impacts everyone differently. And that can be a tricky place because we might know what it looks like when we're struggling, when we might look at a colleague and say, well, they don't look like me when I'm struggling, so they must be okay. And that's not necessarily true. And so appreciating that everyone's experiences are unique and looking for changes in behavior, um, you know, that sort of inability to move past things that really stick with us that are interfering with our, our daily living. Those are, those are all warning signs. And Dr. Bess, what can veterinarians do to protect themselves from compassion fatigue? So by the very nature of what we do, we are, we cannot avoid being exposed to difficult things. It, um, and, and I think, you know, we might think, oh, maybe if I limit my practice to chiropractor and acu chiropractic and acupuncture, maybe I'm not going to, we're still going to see tough things. One of the important things to understand about how tr trauma and traumatic things work is that the, the state of our nervous system, and we can remember way back to physiology and thinking about our autonomic nervous system and how it splits into our sympathetic and our parasympathetic. Promise I won't go any further than that. But parasympathetic being rest and digest. That's when our system is calm. Our sympathetic sort of gears up when we're stressed, right? And that's often what happens when we feel threatened. Our sympathetic system goes like, hey, you need me for survival. When our sympathetic nervous system is dominant, and we'll remember, you know, it, it's either one or the other. There's no sort of seesaw balance in the middle. So when our sympathetic nervous system is dominant, we become quite sticky to stress. We become like Velcro. So if I'm having a difficult day for whatever reason, and I am working with a client who has something really tough going on that would fall into the category of trauma, I'm sticky. And so that, that, that experience of, of that client is more likely to be impactful. It is more likely to get coded by my body as a trauma. And so knowing that really is, is empowering from the sense of when, when I and when each of us chooses to manage the amount of stress we have, to manage, manage our nervous systems, we have the power to become much more like Teflon. And, and it's not easy to like take deep breaths when we're stressed. We become really accustomed to stress in our daily lives. It just is part of part of how we roll, right? Like, of course I'm stressed. Things are fine, right? Unfortunately, that attitude makes us like Velcro. And so we need to be really aware and start paying attention to, hey, where, you know, where's my nervous system right now? Am I feeling under threat because I'm late? Because I'm hungry? Because uh, I had to fight with my kids to get out the door this morning? Um, because I feel overfaced with a case and I haven't found the answer because those things drive threat in our own bodies, which turn our sympathetic nervous system on. And when our sympathetic nervous system is on, we become like Velcro, which frankly sucks. Um, and so what we want to do is think, how can I use techniques like mindfulness, like meditation, 
any type of mind-body technique that helps us re-engage with the here and now, flip back into parasympathetic nervous system dominance so that we are much more like Teflon. Because when we're like Teflon, even though that traumatic thing, we're witnessing it from someone else, it's not affecting us or it doesn't have the same likelihood of getting encoded in our brains and being a problem going forward. And so that idea of how do I manage myself? Because I know that my day is going to include seeing difficult things means that we sort of have to be proactive. And that's, that's a choice that we can make to help, to help ourselves going forward. One of the things that is not effective is just trying to be less empathetic with our clients. Um, you know, compassion fatigue is not fatigue because we're compassionate. And that's a really important thing to appreciate because when many veterinarians consider themselves to be empathic human beings, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I think that the idea that I can't be my authentic self as an empathetic person is if we devote energy into trying to find a way to be that's not authentic, A, it's stressful, it's exhausting, and it's not likely to be successful in the long term. What we want to look at is, is understanding sort of good boundaries between what's mine and what is the client's. So because many equine veterinarians have firsthand experience with their horses or horses in their lives that they've loved and cared about, when we witness a client going through something similar, our brains through like mirror neurons and other things, hey, our stuff gets stirred up. And so I'm more sensitive to that trauma of the client because it looks like mine. And so what we need to be aware of is always remembering what is the client's and what's mine. And I think about it like a fishbowl. So we think of two fishbowls sitting beside each other. I have a fishbowl. And when I'm empathetic, I jump into the client's fishbowl and I like swim around. I'm like, oh, hey, this is what this is like for you. And that helps me, um, helps me relate, build a strong relationship, be an effective practitioner, find solutions. But then I need to jump back into my own fishbowl. When I jump into their fishbowl and I stay there and forget that it's theirs and I'm like, oh yeah, this is awful. And suddenly all of their stuff becomes mine. No, I need to jump back into my own fishbowl because my own fishbowl has its own problems, but they are not the same as the clients. So thinking about, yeah, I can go there briefly, right? You can go there briefly, understand what this is like, but then I'm going back to my own. So understanding that delineation between their trauma and our own life is really important. I'm going to buzzword it. It's part of having good boundaries. So having good boundaries is really important when we're thinking about how to be sort of resilient in the face of compassion fatigue. That's that's really, really good. Um, another thing that you had mentioned before is, and you, you touched on it a little here, attending to your body's needs. You said, am I hungry? You know, so... How do you attend to your body's needs? Because I'm sorry, most veterinarians I know are really bad about living on junk food and get, they can tell you the best hot dog at the gas stations close by or the taco or the breakfast burrito. And 
you know, shoving Cokes, you know, into their coolers. Decra Veterinary Products is proud to sponsor Equimanagement's The Business of Practice podcast. Decra's equine product line includes Osphos, Clotinate Injection, Orthokine Vet IRAP 10 and 60, Osteocon PRP, Equidone Gel, Thumperidone, the Vetivex line of parenteral fluids, Vicox EQ Joint Supplement, and a comprehensive line of topical dermatologic products. The recent addition of Zymeta, Diaperone Injection, further expands Decra's equine offerings. For more information about Decra's products, please visit decra-us.com. Yes, I. we are certainly a profession that, um, you know, despite our awareness of biology and nutrition and important things, we do not seem to, to, to put the same intention around that with ourselves necessarily. And I appreciate that in some ways, it's because we feel that we can sacrifice that. That's, that's like collateral damage is my own nutrition or I need this much caffeine to get through the day or to meet the needs of my clients. And what, you know, and even through vet school, I used to have a motto that was something's got going to give and it's going to be me. And I thought that was okay. <laughs> like That was okay with me. And I, it was, it was a motto. It was funny. And now I'm older and I just look at that. And I'm like, that's really not, it was never okay. And it's really not okay now. So I think that we put ourselves last. I think that sort of culture of self-sacrifice on, you know, in the spirit of making sure our patients and our clients are well taken care of and our families, that's become acceptable collateral damage. And I think we need to change that narrative. My understanding of the importance of self-care and the importance of just in the understanding of our neurophysiology and, and what it looks like when we're at our best it tells me that I have to take care of myself well in order to do my best work for other people. And so the idea that self-care is selfish is actually the opposite. When I engage in like robust self-care behavior, I am way better able to care for everybody around me. And so that comes from an awareness that when I'm hungry, my brain doesn't function very well. And not just because I'm a woman and not just because that's my unique self, but because from an evolutionary standpoint, when we were hungry, that meant we could die. And so our brains learn to respond and say, I'm now going to devote a bunch of your energy to looking for food. And so maybe why do we make bad nutrition decisions on the road? Because our sympathetic nervous system has said, you're going to eat now. And that gas station is the only thing that's close by. So being aware for me of the weight, like just the, you know, the thousands of years of evolution and their impact on my behavior. And so when I threaten, when my, when my brain senses that I'm threatening my survival, whether it's because I'm hungry, thirsty, um, you know, the, the well-being of my children is, is not what I want it to be. And any of those things. I'm not able to engage my cortex, my rational thinking brain, my emotional balance, all of those things. I'm not able to do that as well. And when I know that, that helps me say, right, so I'm going to pack a lunch or I'm going to spend, you know, more money on that meal service 
or I'm going to pay someone to clean my house so that I have more time to do these other things because that means that my patients are going to get better care. Even if I think they're getting excellent care right now, they'll get whatever above excellent is, right? Superb at like next level stuff because I will be better. And even if we were good enough right now, there is better out there and there's enjoying where we are, right? There's me feeling less pressured and threatened about getting through the day. And long-term compassion fatigue sucks and it, it interferes with our enjoyment of our job. And so from a, you know, loving being a horse vet, wanting to do this for a long time, not wanting to come out of this, a damaged shell of myself managing my stress is a critical piece you know and it's hard for me to have good boundaries when I'm exhausted right because I just I'm barely holding on so positioning myself well is a part of doing my job well and one thing that I love about it is it's something I can do there's a lot of stuff that I can't do and I can't change And as a control enthusiast, which I prefer strongly to control freak, I really, really like things that I can control. And so I can control how I approach my day, how I pack my lunch, you know, whether I can use a calming technique before getting out of getting out of the truck at a tough call. I can control those things and that I appreciate having more domain over my day and my experience in my career. And you've also mentioned, Dr. Best, using using your social connections to keep yourself um, more on track or more centered in helping with your stress. How do you use your social connections that way? So we know that from a compassion fatigue standpoint, having people that you can talk to um, about what's going on is important. And so whether it's sort of friends to share a a tough story with, but everyone involved in that equation needs to be able to have a calm body when they're hearing about that story, right? So using your social connections to diminish the isolation and, and the loneliness around like, Hey, I'm having this, I'm watching this client go through this really tough thing and and I'm, I'm alone. Those social connections are really important. Um, I'm, I'm going to, you know, plug therapy and counselors here because I think they're crucial um but also creating a culture amongst sort of our colleagues and in our profession of let's stop normalizing some of these high stress behaviors let's stop you know like let's not have comparative suffering I'm like oh I don't have it as bad as so and so or I'm I'm weak because I I only did seven appointments today like no if that's what's that's what's doing. That's, that's okay. Or I stopped for lunch. Heaven forbid you stopped for lunch. Instead of eating, driving to your next call, you were passing a a park on your way and and you stopped. That's, Hey, like, I want to applaud you. I want to high five you. I want to fist bump. So changing some of the narrative or supporting that stuff. So instead of applauding or how do we, you know, how do we trade tricks around? How do we survive breeding season? You know, and so we get, you know, overnight oat sharing on, you know, in our in our Facebook groups about like, well, this is how I get a nutritious breakfast to start my day. And, you know, these are how I use 
you know, my vaccine ice packs to store my lunch if my fridge is broken. You know, so how do we start normalizing those conversations as part of sustainability in our profession? The same way we talk about how to handle a retained placenta or a dummy foal. So I think we need to start having those conversations more, appreciating that we are all experiencing these challenges. Whether, whether we want to admit it or not, we are all exposed to the trauma of our clients and we all need to find ways to handle it so that we, you know, so that we don't take those hits. And is there anything else, Dr. Best, that you would like to talk about with compassion fatigue? You know, I, again, it's really worth repeating. It is a manageable thing. It is not, it is not a freight train that's coming for you, no matter what you do. You know, using the tools that are available, understanding what's, what, what is happening in your body, growing that awareness so that you can manage yourself effectively and managing yourself effectively does not include not caring or not showing up in a compassionate, kind, empathetic way for your clients. You can, like, if that's you, please keep doing that because compassion satisfaction is a thing. And for you to cut off that part of yourself will A, interfere with a whole bunch of other stuff in your life, which we don't want or need, but it will change the enjoyment you get out of doing your job. And so what we want to do is find a way for it to be sustainable and healthy. And understanding that the trauma piece is key and also understanding that some of us based on our experiences in our childhood, other experiences um, with trauma might be more vulnerable. And that's really when I'd say, you know, finding finding a good counselor is key finding someone who can help you work through those those traumas and and heal them so that they don't come back and don't continue to make you vulnerable as we we know we're going to see those traumas in our profession so a lot of this is you know being gentle and being open being open to the fact that this is part of our job and we can't ask clients to stop having a hard time or horses to stop dying or trying to kill themselves because you know that's the job of forces really but it it is part of our job that no one tells us about in school you know we don't we don't learn about an internship but it's part of our job to figure out how to manage those things in a way that's uniquely right for us and you know the knowledge tools and skills and resources are available we just have to go find them yeah, I always like to say that that counselors and therapists don't solve your problem. They help you find the tools that you can solve it. When I, I've had some individuals say to me like, oh, I felt like I should handle it on my own. And I think we can all relate to wishing that clients had called us earlier sometimes when something had gone awry with their horse. Like, oh, I, it would have been easier to fix earlier. The same thing is true with counselors and with us. So even you're like, oh, things aren't that bad. I don't need, hey, it's a good thing to just know who to call, right? To establish a relationship so that you know who they are. And if you think you're in trouble, there's every reason to go get help. We don't expect our clients to be able to fix their horses on their own. And we don't shame, we don't, it's not embarrassing that they can't doctor their own horse. The same way, it's okay that we can't always fix what's going on. We don't always have the knowledge, skills, tools, and resources to manage 
some of those emotional, traumatic, difficult experiences that we have in life. That's normal and expected. And I'm going to steal one more quote from that article I had mentioned before that you did. The take home on this topic is clear. It's time to care for ourselves the way we care for our patients and clients. So we want to thank you, Dr. Best, for joining us today to talk about compassion fatigue. We want to thank our audience for joining us for the Business of Practice podcast and a big thanks to our sponsor, Decra Veterinary Products. We invite you to visit equimanagement.com or your favorite podcast network, such as iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher, to hear each episode of the Business of Practice. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can send an email to me at kbrown at equinenetwork.com. The Business of Practice podcast is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC. 